Welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Um, I'll finish chapter 2 this week. Next week, uh, Aaron's going to step in the pulpit and he's going to share from Galatians chapter 3 for us. And so this morning, we're going to finish up Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. And so far, what we've been seeing in the book of Galatians, as Paul's writing to these churches in Galatia, is what Paul is getting through to us is that we must get the gospel right. That's been clear, that we must get the truth of the gospel right We must get gospel doctrine right. That the truth of the gospel, the truth of the announcement of how we are saved is Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus is everything. And these Judaizers had stepped in and uh, these Judaizers had started preaching that it was Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus the law. And so they even were making these claims. It appears that the apostles in Jerusalem were, were backing them in this teaching. But Paul told us last week that he went to Jerusalem and he talked to the apostles. And they added nothing to what he was preaching because there's nothing to be added to the gospel. It is Christ and Christ alone. So he was getting the point across to them that the doctrine of the gospel is just what he's been preaching as was revealed to him in Christ that it's Jesus plus nothing it's not Jesus plus morality it's not Jesus plus law keeping Jesus is our hope period gospel doctrine must be right and what Paul is going to step into this mo- this morning In Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, is not only must we get the gospel doctrine right, that we must live in step with the gospel. That we must live in the power of the gospel. Jesus plus nothing is the doctrine, and it is everything. It's everything for our salvation, and it is everything sufficient for living lives of godliness to his glory. It's everything in how we are saved, and the gospel is everything in how we live. And so we must not only preach right doctrine, but we must walk in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the Judaizers had stepped into these Galatian churches, preaching a different gospel, suggesting that the Jerusalem apostles were in support of them, all of this was debunked by Paul with his visit The issue for these Judaizers was they were preaching decent behavior. They weren't preaching immorality. They were preaching to live the law of God as given in the Old Testament. They were preaching decent behavior, but we saw that preaching Christ plus decent behavior is damning belief. That they must be accursed. Whether it's an angel or Paul or Judaizers, anybody, even today, preaches Christ plus anything else. It's damning. It's We are to be accursed. The Judaizers weren't advocating for behavior that was outright moral. They were pushing for this Old Testament law keeping. And the law of God given in the Old Testament was given by God. The law is not bad. But the law is powerless to save. The Judaizers were preaching something that was never true. It was never true that they were saved by law keeping in the Old Testament. You understand this, right? The gospel didn't change. The gospel, as was first proclaimed in Genesis 3.15, that someone would step in and crush the serpent once and for all, they've always been saved by faith. The Old Testament saints were not saved by law-keeping and works. You understand this, right? They were always saved by grace through faith. 
The law was never meant as a means of salvation. The folks of the Old Testament were not saved by law-keeping. People have always been saved by grace. The law was meant to show their need. The the, The blood of bulls and goats, the Bible says in Hebrews, could never wash away sin. And no amount of eating or cleansing can make us clean. The law is powerless to save. But what the law could not do, Christ did by taking on flesh and fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law for us. The law couldn't take away their sin, but it showed their sins needed atoning for. The law couldn't cleanse them, but it made very clear that they needed cleansing. By the law, they showed that they were separated from other nations, but the truth of the matter is to be truly separated by other nations was not just to be born in Israel or born an Israelite. It was to believe in God by faith, by trusting. Hebrews is clear about this. If you need a commentary of the Old Testament, go read Hebrews. What the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son for us. We read that in Romans chapter 8 in our prayer this morning. So getting the gospel right. Let's get into our text this morning. So getting the gospel right means living in step with the gospel. They have confirmed now through Galatians 1 and 2, the doctrine is Christ plus nothing, not even good law keeping. And now Paul is going to consider for us the implications of living by the gospel. Let's go ahead and take a look. Gospel conduct. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas, Peter... Paul has talked about he met him in Jerusalem. Peter was to go to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. Same spirit in them. Different, different, different people they're going to. Same gospel, same spirit working in them. But, but Paul has a problem with Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, the Judaizers. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was, maybe you can underline this or highlight it or just look at it if you don't like marking your Bible, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul continues some of these autobiographical moments as he went to Jerusalem. Now he's talking about this interaction with Peter, calling him out. Yes, Peter affirms the gospel, but there was a time where Peter was not living in step with the gospel. He was living in step with the gospel. Listen to what he says. He was, in verse 12 of chapter 2, he was eating with the Gentiles. He was sharing table fellowship. Peter, the Jew, was sharing table fellowship with these sinner Gentiles. Just what the gospel came to do, where there's, as one person said, there's level ground at the foot of the cross. They recognized that, that the, the, the walls of hostility had been torn down. The gospel is for all nations. It's for everybody. And that was proclaimed by the way that Peter sat down with Gentiles and he shared a meal with him. He, he was living out the implications of the gospel. That there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, but we all are one in Christ and we enjoy life together. Rich and poor. 
old and young, all gathered around the table. We're going to see that over there in the fellowship hall in a minute. It's a glorious thing we get to participate in. Paul, Peter was living in step with the gospel, but something happened. Something changed. The, the circumcision party showed up. And so now Peter has a dilemma. Do I live in, in fear of man? Do I live in a way that protects myself so they don't persecute me maybe? Or do what they did to Paul and give him 40 lashes minus one and Say, you're not living the gospel, Peter. You're a sinner because you're fellowshipping with these unclean people. What does he do? It was easy before all the pressure, even the religious pressure, came in. But what did Peter do? He separated himself, the Bible says. It says in verse 12 that he drew back and separated himself. This is military language that Paul is using here. That here's what Peter did. He saw the circumcision party coming. And though he was enjoying table fellowship and he was living with these gospel implications, now Peter strategically withdraws. He strategically sets back in order to protect himself from this circumcision party. Perhaps he was worried about his political standing. Perhaps he was worried about his social standing. You've experienced this before. You're enjoying the glories of the gospel, but you don't want people to think you're weird, or you don't want to think people you're this kind of religious person or whatever, so you withdraw. And you're strategic about the way you present yourself before other people. We put these facades up all the time, so we've, we've done this. But by withdrawing from tables fellowship with the Gentiles, get this, Peter was sending a clear message about what counts. Reliance upon the law and its work is what secures favor with God. He would never preach that, but his actions were showing otherwise. Rather than trust God's provision in Christ alone, rather than say, look, circumcision party, it's Jesus plus nothing, and we have been brought together by the gospel of Jesus Christ, so we share a meal together. This is the implications. This is in step with the gospel. Instead of doing that, Peter withdrew, and by his actions, he proclaimed a different gospel. Peter was swayed by fear of man. He was swayed trying to position himself in a, maybe a safe political space, strategically withdrawing himself. Peter was playing both sides for his own convenience and benefit. And as a leader, Peter's actions affected others. Namely, it says that Barnabas, with this hypocrite, hypo, as he was acting hypocritically, Barnabas was even led astray Not by the gospel he preached with his mouth, but by the gospel he lived with his life. Here's the result of this interaction that Paul talks about in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. The result is that Peter, Cephas, has now distorted the gospel with his actions. This brought to mind as I was thinking about this. Now there's this... and you maybe know where I'm going with this. There's the famous, the famous St. Francis of Assisi quote. They don't know if you really said it or not. Preach the gospel daily, and if necessary, use words. Now, I like to try to give him the benefit of the doubt. He wasn't saying that necessarily that people can be saved just by watching us. We must proclaim the gospel. I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Elias Medeiros, who was a fiery Brazilian missions professor because I got my degree is in missions, so I took a bunch of missions class. And so this, guy, this fiery Brazilian preacher 
first day of class, got up there, and there was always a, a joke, kind of this urban legend in the classroom that he had. It was a big, wide-open classroom, and there was a pole in the middle of the classroom because it was wide open, so it was probably up there for support. It was always said that you need to get a spot next to that pole in the classroom because when Dr. Medeiros gets going, that pole will start shaking because he's preaching so loud. And so that day, Dr. Medeiros got going. He said, you've heard it said that St. Francis of Sissy said that preach the gospel daily. And if necessary, you use words. But brothers and sisters, I'm telling you that it is necessary to use words because how will we believe? And yet, lest we hear the gospel, how beautiful are the feet that declare the gospel to the nations. And the pole began to shake as he went after this quote from St. Francis of Sissy. Now, here, here's what we're saying. I'm, I'm not saying... That gospel living replaces gospel proclamation, right? I'm not sure if St. Francis was saying that or not. If he was, he was wrong. But here's what we're saying. We don't want to, with our actions, distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must ask the question. Is there something I'm doing, something I'm living that's distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ? Words must be true. Words must be spoken And our actions must be consistent in step with, Paul says right here, in step with the truth of the gospel. So that's the result. He distorted the gospel through his actions. Now hear the warning. Our living must be in step with the gospel. That's an overwhelming. There's no one who's infallible, not even Peter. He's not infallible. There's no one with a level of authority that is above accountability. Paul straight up calls him out. We all, from top to bottom, leaders to non-leaders, we all must be living this out. And leaders are accountable for the way they proclaim the gospel with their actions. So hear the warning. None of us is above accountability. But hear the grace. Hear the grace this morning. Martin Luther, after reading this passage, it was said that Galatians was one of the hinges of the Reformation Here's what Martin Luther says. Peter fell, and I too may fall. And if Peter stood up again, so can I. So if you are overwhelmed with the way that your life has not reflected the gospel, guess Peter fell too, but brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, he stood up again, and that grace is sufficient for you. That is good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So How do we live in line with the gospel? How do we live in line with this truth that righteousness cannot be gained through the law? That if so, that means Christ died for nothing. How do we live in line with the gospel? How do we live in a way that magnifies grace rather than nullifies grace as Paul closes out Galatians 2 saying? I don't want to live in a way that nullifies grace. That's what Peter was doing. There was grace for him. I don't want to live that way. How do we live in a way that shouts, Jesus had to die for me, and he loved me, and he gave himself for me? How do we proclaim that this life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God? Paul goes on to speak of this. Galatians 2.15, after this interaction, here's, the, here's where it goes. Here's how we live by faith. Verse 15, follow along with me. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentiles, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Jew or Greek, 
no one will be justified by works of the law. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So how do we go on living by faith so as not to nullify the grace of God that he's lavished upon us in Christ Jesus? How do we live in a way that shows that we are saved by grace, that we will continue by grace, and that grace will bring us all the way home? Number one, know who you are. Know who you are. That's what Peter is saying in Galatians 2.15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Would have been a common phrase for Jews at the time. We were not born as Gentile sinners, but indeed we were born Israel. We were born Jews. So number one, know who you are. And you can know who you are by asking this the question. Who do you think you are? Here's a question. Are we relying upon who we are or what we've done for our right standing with God? Are we relying upon who we are? That's the question in Galatians 2.15. Are you Jew or Gentile? Are you relying upon your nationality or your culture or your upbringing or your birthright or whatever it is? Who we are, what we've done, law-keeping, the thing he's been talking about all this time, Jewish law-keeping, are we relying on that for our standing with God. Now, it was natural for Jews to presume upon God's favor because who they were. They were recipients of the law of God. They were God's chosen people. Nevertheless, it was still by faith. But this temptation to presume upon God's grace is not foreign to us just because we may be born Gentile, not Jewish. That's what we're Jews by birth. We presume upon God's grace and we're not Gentile sinners. Look who we are. We're not them. This Jewish presumption is simply, listen to this, an expression that brings to the forefront, Galatians 2.15 is an expression that brings to the forefront the temptation of all humanity to presume on God's favor based on who you are or what you have done. That's something that we struggle with. And so ask the question, what, when you think of your standing before God, what are you relying upon? What are you pleading? Who you are? Here's my heritage. Here's where I was born. Here's my upbringing. I was in church all my life or whatever. What I've done, I've done all of these things. Do you presume upon the grace of God because of who you are or what you've done? Saying, I was born Jew, not Gentile sinners. This is in all of us. This presumption, and we forget that God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. Jew and Gentile alike, born in church or not, born of a faith family or not, God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. So how do we live by faith? We know who we are, that we are sinners. 
Know who we are, what we have done. We are born sinners, and what we've done, we've committed sin. We all stand guilty. God loves us while we are still sinners. Number two, how do we live by faith? Know who we are. Number two, know how you are justified. How are you made right before God? How are you cleansed, and how do you have right standing before God? Yet we know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, Never has been, never will be. But through faith, trust, reliance upon Jesus Christ. So we have also believed, Jew and Gentilic like, we have, Peter, Paul is saying, oh, us Jew, even we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Just like the Gentiles, us too. And not by works of the law. But because by works of the law, Jew or Gentile, no one will be justified. I don't care how good you are. Or how many sins you haven't committed. How moral you are. How wonderfully you vote. None of it justifies you. We're still dirty, rotten, doggone sinners who only can be justified by the grace of God. Here's a question. Are we convinced that Christ's death is the only reliable basis of our right standing before God? You wouldn't think just denying table fellowship with Gentiles would bring this on by Paul, right? Here's what was being clouded by the way that they were living. Justification by faith was being clouded. And they couldn't see it. What are you convinced is your only reliable basis of our right standing before God? If it's not Christ, if it's not Christ alone, then it's nothing. What's the basis of our justification? The work of Christ or the work of the law that we perform? Our work or the work of Christ? For everyone, it's only by the work of Christ that we can come to Christ. It's only by Christ. In Christ, in Christ alone, the provisions of the law could not deal with the problem of sin. The performance of the law could not deal with sin. They could not clean. They could not atone once and for all. Only Christ could do that, and he has. No amount of religious living can replace the need for the gospel or make the gospel better by adding to the gospel. Know who you are, you are a sinner. Know that your only hope, the only way to be made right, Jew or Gentile alike, is to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And know the only way. Look at what he says in Galatians 2.16. We also have believed in Christ Jesus. So what do you know to be the only means of justification? The number, however many numbers I'm on at this point, are we trusting in Christ alone? For our justification. Do we know he's the only way of justification? Do we believe it? Do we live according to it? Does everything in our life, is it marked that we are trusting upon the grace of God for our salvation and every breath that we take so we believe? Here's Paul's logic. Because he knows that the only provision that counts is the faithfulness of God's Son unto death, So, he says, we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the provision of Christ and not by the provision of the law. 
Rather than relying upon the law with its works, Paul has fled to Christ Jesus for salvation from sin and condemnation. Brothers and sisters, are you trusting in Christ who you are? What's the only way to be justified? Have you trusted in Jesus for salvation? And if you have, you will see through his life that his grace is even better than we can imagine. Because it's a grace that saves and it's a grace that carries us all the way home. Colossians says this, that just as we have received Christ, so walk in him. Walk in step with grace. So know that Christ is the only way and know, here's another truth, that we have died to the law. Verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were to be found sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Here, here's what Paul is saying at this point. He's talking about justification by faith. He's preaching justification by faith, not by works, not by law. And he says here, if in this endeavor to be justified in Christ and Christ alone, we are found to be sinners, that is, in the eyes of the Jews, if what they are doing as table fellowship by mingling with the unclean, if that is making them sinners and Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, then they are sinners based upon what Christ has done and what Christ has declared. And he's saying that's illogical to think. They are living the gospel of Christ. May this not be to say that justification by faith is some sort of easy believism or somehow is giving us over to the ability to sin. This is not what he is saying. We're not a servant of, of, Christ is not a servant of sin. Certainly not. And would they rebuild, verse 18, what, 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 what's been torn down? He, I myself will be tr- proved to be a transgressor. What Christ has done, fulfilling the law. If I rebuild that by putting the law back, I'm undoing what Christ has done, that I'm the transgressor. If Christ calls me a sinner for a table fellowship with the Gentiles, then he's a sinner, but that's not true. Therefore, he's saying, call Paul what you want. Call him a sinner, but he's not violating God's will or nullifying God's grace. In fact, he's magnifying God's grace because he has died to the law. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to be dead to the law? It can't be that we no longer obey the law of God. It can't be that we no longer live, at least... In, in what the New Testament talks about, consider all the rest of Paul's writings. Doesn't he tell Christians they must obey the law? For example, Paul tells Corinthians about sexual morality is wrong on the basis of what he says in Genesis about marriage. So there are things of the law of God that we obey. It's not saying go live as you want. There's certain things that we live by. But we died to the law. Here's what he's saying. I died to the law. As a way of being saved. As a way not to nullify the grace of God. So for all of you lawbreakers out there, you have died to the law. That's not the way you are saved. So you have not lost your salvation by committing a sin against the Lord. You've died to that. There's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. For he loved you and gave himself for you. And you are secure in that. Don't nullify grace by thinking that you lose salvation by committing a sin that somehow God is going to snatch your salvation away because of a sin that you have committed. You've died to that. You're no longer pursuing the law of a way of being saved. 
the law itself has showed me that I could never make my, myself acceptable to God through it. Paul is saying, as one pastor paraphrases, so I stopped living to it. I died to the law performance as my, as my Savior. Though I obeyed God before, it was simply something to get it was simply to get something from him. It was for my own sake. Now I obey him simply to please him. Now I live for him. We're dead to the law. But we are alive to God, it says at the end of chapter, verse 19, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Dead to the law, I'm alive in God. Know that you are alive in God. How am I made alive in God? I've been crucified with Christ. The only way to be made alive to God is to die. He bids us come and die. To die to self, die to your own opinions, die to your own moral performance, die to, die to it all. Be crucified with Christ. That's the only way to be raised to life. To live to the glory of God. As so as to not nullify grace, but to magnify grace is to die to self. Know you are alive to God, Christian. For you have died to the law. You've been raised to life, to walk in the newness of life in Jesus Christ. It is no longer I who live, praise God, praise God, but Christ who lives in me. If salvation depended upon you, you would lose your salvation. I would lose my salvation. Thank God it doesn't depend upon you. For this life you now live, you live by faith, by trust in the Son of God. Plead Christ in his blood. This life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so Paul is saying, in order to live by faith, we must reckon ourselves dead to sin. We must reckon ourselves dead to the law and alive in Jesus Christ. We must live in this reality that we've been crucified with Christ. We're no longer living for ourselves. We're no longer living by the power of our own selves. We are living by the power of the resurrected Christ in us. For if you are in Christ, you are resurrected already. And we're living that resurrection life. Sin no longer has a hold on you, for Christ has taken it to the cross, for he loved you and gave himself up for you. It's not because he had to, but because he loved you. And the only way for you to be saved is for him to go to the cross to give himself for you. So he must do it. But he was glad to do it for you. For you, not just generally. He loved me and gave himself for me. I am in Christ. I am free from condemnation. I've already died And my judgment has fallen upon Christ. My debt has been paid for Christ has paid it for me. And the glories of Christ have been reckoned to my account. This grace of Christ has been reckoned to my account. I am loved by God as if I had lived the life that Christ lived. I'm no longer under the condemnation, under the wrath of God because that's been satisfied on the cross of Christ. It's not that me who lives, but it's Christ. It's a triumphant reminder that though we ourselves are sinners in Christ, we are righteous and justified by faith. By faith. By simply trusting in Him. By trusting in Jesus. And it's because of the love of Jesus, He loved Himself and gave Himself up for us that we live lives for the glory of God. 
we don't live lives for the glory of God, motivated by the law and performance and somehow paying God back for what he has done for us. It's all out of grace. Imagine my kids coming up to me at the end of the day and with a list of chores that they had completed and say, look, Dad, look what all I've done today. I've cleaned the room. I've emptied the dishwasher. I've done all these things that you've asked me to do. Am I a part of this family now? Have I earned my right to be a part of this family now? You say, well, that's foolish, son. You've been my son this whole time. The reason you obey and do the things I ask you to do is out of love, not to earn your place in the family. But how often do we go to God and say, God, look what I've done this week. Am I one of your children now? Am I loved by you now? No, 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 that's that's law. That nullifies grace. We live the gospel. We walk in step with the gospel by the power of grace and because of grace. And our hearts are constrained, the Bible says, not by law, but by grace, by the love of God. Because he loves us, we are constrained to live our lives for the glory of God. We never get past the gospel. We never get past grace. And no amount of human performance or law keeping will make God love you more if you are in Christ. And no sin so great will make him love you less. Yes, you might endure discipline, but the Father disciplines those he loves. He will never love you less. Because when God looks upon us, he sees the work of his sons, for you have been justified, of his son, because you have been justified. Not by the law, not by works, but by faith in the Son of God who loved you. And gave himself for you. I love how I'll close with this. A little book I read over the last year was, I've probably mentioned it before, was Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly. Has anybody read that? I highly recommend that book. Uh, Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly. If you want to be overwhelmed with the heart of Christ, it comes in really short chapters, and so you can even read it as a devotional. He's speaking of Galatians chapter 2.20 and chapter 20 or 21 of his book. I can't remember which one. And here's how he starts out this chapter. We can live two ways. And here's what I want to submit to you as we end this morning. As we talk about living by faith, knowing who we are, knowing where our justification comes from, knowing who we are in Christ, knowing that we're loved by Christ, knowing all these things is how we live by faith and walking in step with that. And our our lives show that. Here's what he says. There's two ways to live the Christian life. We can leave, leave or either live it for the heart of Christ in order to earn his love or from the heart of Christ out of his great love for us because the love with which he has loved us. Here's what he goes on to say in that chapter. He said, often our sin darkens our feelings of his gracious heart towards us, his love for us. But his heart cannot be diminished for his own people Due to, the sin, to, due to their sins, any more than the sun's existence can be threatened due to the passing of a few wispy clouds or even an extended thunderstorm. The sun is shining. The grace of God is shining. His love for us is shining. Whether you've been trying to serve him by law or whether you've wondering if he could love you still, the sun is shining and cannot stop. Clouds, no clouds, sin, no sin. The tender heart of God is shining on me if you are in Christ. This is unflappable affection, he says. Judgment does not await 
for it has already fallen upon Christ. For you have been justified by faith in Christ. Judgment has already fallen. The sword of judgment has already fallen. The loved and restored you, who you are in Christ, the crucified you that no longer lives but Christ in you, the loved and restored you trumps, outstrips, and swallows up the unrestored you. Not the other way around. And never the other way around. His love now defines me. His love is my identity. For Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. And I've been crucified with Christ. And with him I've been raised to life. I am his and he is mine. The grace that saved you, Christian, is sufficient for today. Let's walk in step with that grace. Let's not only believe it, but live it. By the way that we love one another, by the way we treat one another, the people that we gather around tables with, And may our actions not nullify the grace of God, whether through our own performance and denial of people, whatever it might look like, let's not nullify the grace of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God in Christ Jesus. For he loved you and gave himself for you. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer.